Shall we pray together? Our Father, we come to you in the name of Christ, thankful that we're able to gather as we have this morning, that we have the freedom in this land to do so, and Lord, that we have the desire to be in the house of the Lord with God's people. We're so thankful, Lord, that you have knitted us together through Jesus Christ the in, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And Father, from many different backgrounds and possibly from different denominational uh, orientations, we can be one in Christ. And we're so grateful for that today. And we're thankful, Lord, for this church and the, what, what you have raised up and for the ministry that is carried on here from week to week. Now, Lord, we would submit to you and ask you to be our teacher. This is your word, which you have written to us. And I pray that you'll grant to us understanding and application and obedience, that we might be the people that you have called us to be. We commit ourselves to you for this hour in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, on page five of the outline, which uh, you should have before you, we are on letter H, the third day. We began just uh, four weeks ago with an introduction, and then we begin looking at the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Let's re uh, read this morning, beginning at verse 9. <clears throat> Genesis 1-9. Then God said, Let the waters... Below the heavens, be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, grasses, literally, plants, herbs, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, with seeds in them on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit, with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the third day. <clears throat> As we have looked at these first few verses in the book of Genesis, We've noted that up till now, the, war, the, the earth was not prepared for human habitation. The earth was covered with water. It must have been quite a sight. Of course, only God saw it at that time, and the angels and all, but no human eyes perceived it. For this water, this, this earth, to be covered with water as it was at that time. On this third day of creation, God chose to create the dry land. And so great earth, earth upheavals began to occur. It must have been something that would have been awesome, of course, to us to have been able to see. We have in this passage also the first appearance of life. And it's kind of interesting, as we'll note as we go along, the order in which God brings life into existence. God is the author of the great titanic forces within the earth that have perpetuated its development over the centuries of time. And these uh, titanic forces, which of course are beyond man's ability to control in any way, shape, or form. In fact, man is still trying to learn how to even predict an earthquake. And as you know, down along the San Andreas Fault, they've established these laser controls to try to determine any slippage which is beginning to occur so they could predict at least a possible earthquake to occur along that fault. But these forces that must have been in operation that day make the San Andreas look pretty puny because we're talking about whole continents rising up out of the sea at one time, virtually, and the mountains forming at that moment, probably. You'll notice on your outline that you, there are two terms that may or may not be familiar to you, apirogenesis and aerogenesis. Apirogenesis is a word which comes out of modern geological study, which means the uplift of continents, uplift on a massive scale, uh, where you're talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of square miles of, of land being shoved upward 
or downward, whatever case happens to be true at the moment. But epigenesis is the birth of continents, the uplift of continents. And so these great land masses were being shoved up out of the sea. Now, we don't know what the face of the earth looked like under the sea. It could have been relatively smooth. We don't know. But at this point, certainly the, the continents began to rise, and of course the waters began to drain off in great torrents as the continents arose. The term orogenesis refers to mountain building, the birth of mountains. And therefore, on these continents, the great mountain masses began to rise by the forces, the tectonic forces, as they're referred to, that began to shove these mountain masses up as they then cut across the continents and formed various uh, ranges here and there. Probably, uh, my personal feeling is that the mountains that were formed at that time were basically the mountains as we find them today, obviously modified by eons of erosion and further uplift and forces that have taken place. But uh, many of them, of course, would have been altered by the great flood and the great deposition of material that occurred at that time. But in general, certainly, the great formation as we see it today was pretty closely produced on that day, most likely. The tensional, that is the pulling away forces, the compressional forces which caused the mountain masses to be shoved up in great folds and faults, must have been something to behold, I'm sure. It would have been like watching time-lapse photography. You know, if you, you've watched a flower unfold, uh, as a photographer took individual frames, moments apart, it must have been something like that to watch these mountain masses just come crunching up out of the, out of the continents as they did. Now what's interesting is what it must have looked like at first. Barren, barren, barren. Rocks, plains, hillsides, totally barren. Rocky surfaces. Yet they would momentarily, at God's command, be blanketed with vegetation just like that. And what's interesting is that they would have an appearance of antiquity, wouldn't they? They would appear as if this had been going on for a long time, as that blanket of vegetation spread out over the entire globe and if you had been there and could have walked amongst the trees and the flowers and the grasses and looked across the hillsides, you'd have said, oh, this must be the product of eons and eons of time. And yet it had appeared literally in the twinkling of an eye as God brought it about on this third day. Can you imagine the waters running off the continent? The great torrents that must have poured off the continental surfaces. And every little crack and cranny that, that didn't have an outlet became a pond or a lake. As, as the great surface of the earth was molded. A stage was set by God himself for the appearance of life. Now, it's kind of interesting that uh, as you look at the surface of the earth, it doesn't appear to be symmetrical. Uh, the continents, as you look upon them from a satellite view, they have kind of ragged coastlines and mountains may be against the coast here and here you have a big broad plain and... Uh, you know, it's as if God were just doing it and saying, well, what will this look like? And forming uh, an earth which is really not very symmetrical as far as the land surfaces are concerned. The ancient Greeks, when they first came up with the idea of a globe, and the idea of a globe goes way back at least 21, 2200 years in time, um, they felt that when they made this globe, they postulated continents where they didn't know continents were simply because they felt the globe had to be balanced. And if you have continents here, you've got to have continents down in the southern hemisphere to balance those in the northern hemisphere. And they postulated continents where, in some cases, they really are, even though they had never seen them. But God created a very, very fascinating world. It was a different world, though, of course, from the one we know today. It was a perfect world. Obviously, the first forms of life that would have to be produced as we understand life today would be the plants because they're at the base of the food chain. All higher orders of creatures must feed on the plants. 
And so they must come first, obviously, before you can create the animal kingdom. And so this is what God does. Now, here you've got these great continental masses and the mountains which have risen up suddenly. How could plants grow in these? They must have been solid rock. So God, before he could blanket it with vegetation, had to instantaneously say, let there be soil. Even though we don't find those words here, that, that's, that's basically required in order for the plants to come. And so all over the surface of the earth, soil suddenly appeared. And as you well know, soil doesn't just suddenly appear by natural processes. Some places soil takes 100, 200 years to form enough depth for plants to grow, like in volcanic areas, basaltic rock areas. Other places it takes thousands of years for the soil to attain enough depth for plants to get a rootage. And there are many places around the planet today where there is insufficient soil, even today, for much in the way of anything larger than natural bonsai trees. <laughs> trees that are 100 years old, they're about that tall. Sounds like my backyard. Sounds like your backyard. <laughs> yeah, I've been to your backyard. It's pretty steep. <laughs> yeah, well, the life forms thus, there was a prerequisite of soil formation, and thus this must have taken place. And of course, again, walk out across there and look at the depth of the soil. It would have the appearance of great age. Yes, yet it had been formed in but a moment. In verse 11 of this particular passage, then God said, let the earth sprout. And then we read the term vegetation, which is translated grasses, the term plants, which is also translated herb, and then trees. In the first 10 verses, we have seen the work of supernatural physics. Now we see the great almighty chemist at work, preparing the soils and creating the plant life that will rise out of the soil that he has thus created. And the result of all of this is seen in verse 12. And the earth brought forth grasses, herbs, yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was very good. He saw it was good. And if God says it's good, it's exquisite. It's beyond our ability to comprehend, really. Now, the great categories of plants that are mentioned here, and, and of course I've listed them there for you on your outline, the grasses, the herbs, and the trees. The grasses, of course, included all your different kinds of ground covers. And today, of course, there's, there are thousands of varieties of grasses which exist. And you and I are eating grass all the time, right? Whenever we eat bread and, and, you know, when we're eating our wheat and our oats and our barley and our rye, we're eating grass. We're even eating grass when we eat corn. <clears throat> Grasses. Whether God created thousands of varieties at that time or just a few varieties which have modified over the centuries to the many varieties we find today, we don't know. But he created the, the herbs, the bushes, the shrubs, the in-between size plants that would be in, in clumps here and clumps there. And then, of course, he created the great woody plants, the trees, that would rise into the heavens, the skies, be the purchase for birds and the bearers of fruit. If you travel around the world very much, you discover that uh, plants come in a very wide variety. You and I are accustomed to a certain number of varieties, and we're constantly trying to root out some varieties uh, which grow in our grass and our lawn and wherever else. But you travel to uh, the tropics and you see wondrous trees that are so unusual uh, to us who are North America, that is middle latitude inhabitants. And these great trees that, if you've, if you've noticed, in the jungle areas, they have three different layers of trees. 
The trees that run up about 150 feet or more than the trees that are about 100 and then the trees are about 50. And they form a, such a canopy that largely the, the, the so-called herbs and grasses tend to be eliminated almost when you get down to the, to the floor. And often a jungle which looks impenetrable from above is, is there's a lot of openness down at the ground level. And yet in our, t our type region here, we, where, where it's much more open, the grasses become far more numerous. And of course, we, we've noted, and if you've ever studied the evolution of, of agriculture, you know that it's really the grassy areas of the world that have become the great agriculture regions. The great grasslands, such as our grasslands back on the other side of the Rocky Mountains have become the great breadbasket of this country. And of course, the great black earth belt of uh, the Southern Soviet Union the, in the Ukraine and all, one of the most wonderful places in the world for growing crops. Uh, grasslands, basically. <clears throat> Actually, jungle lands don't make good agricultural lands. They have to chop down the forest and they, they grow a crop and within two or three years they've got to move because the soil has lost its fertility. And neither do the great uh, pine forests of the north, the so-called taiga. That doesn't make good agricultural land either because the soil's too acidic, too shallow. So it's the great grasslands of the middle latitudes that we find today to be most prolific for human food. Can we imagine the difference in the appearance of the earth from the beginning of that day to the end of that day? Looking at the earth and it's covered with this, this great sea at the end of the day, the continents with the mountains and totally covered with vegetation. It must have been a wonder to behold. And of course, as I said, only God and his angels were there to behold it. The barren earth, clothed with forests and meadows and fields of flowers. I think God's just blanketed the world with fields of flowers. Why'd he do it? Why did he do that? Well, I think one of the reasons he did it was for his own sheer delight. God is a God of, of wonder. God is a God of beauty. And he wants to behold beauty. And he is the author of beauty. God, of course, also did it to become the habitat of mankind. The whole purpose for creating the world was to be a place in which he'd put man and which the drama of redemption would take place for all the angelic hosts to see. Our God is not only a God of beauty, but he's a God of fruitfulness, not of barrenness, not of sterility. What he did in this mighty act of creation Recorded in this first chapter of Genesis, he wants to do individually in every one of our lives. What is the application of the first chapter of Genesis other than just understanding certain truths about what happened, knowing something about the history of God's work on planet Earth? I think the application includes the truth that God wants to take our barrenness and our nakedness and clothe us Clothe us in the white robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He wants to create in you and me a beauty that the world will behold. Of course, the world is blind and does not perceive that beauty, but it's there for them to behold when their eyes are opened by God to see what he has done. <coughs> the miracle of your salvation and my salvation is every bit as wondrous as what God did here in the first chapter of Genesis. I mean, you know your life, I know my life. And to know what God has done and what God does daily, you know, it just, it even overpowers this in terms of our individual existence. Actually, it was pretty easy for God to do what he did. He just simply spoke and the worlds were framed. We don't, can, we, we cannot even perceive of that. You go back to the, the legends of the ancient Greeks and, and the gods, when they made things, always started with something. 
You know, they, they chopped an arm off of something and, and created something out of it, you know. And you've got other gods and goddesses popping out of the heads and the torsos of other gods. I mean, it's really gross. That's human imagination. Mankind could never have, con, uh, you know, developed this. Those who study Genesis as literature and look at this and say, well, those authors were pretty good to write this kind of poetry. Can you imagine a man with the with capacity of actually inventing this story? I don't think so. It's too wondrous. It's too beautiful. It's too perfect to be the invention of a man. What God is doing here is recounting for us the details of creation so that we might, what? Believe. Believe what he wants to do in your life and what he wants to do in my life. This is put here for our faith that we might believe in the power of the Mighty One, the Almighty One, to do whatever He chooses to do. If He can just speak and the, the stars are flung through space, and if you ever study a little bit of astronomy, you, you look at the stars and you just wonder at them. I'm told that there are very few astronomers who are truly uh, atheistic. Many of them are agnostic. They don't really know uh, who God is, but they just cannot believe it happened by accident. Because the, these bodies out there are so huge and so wondrous. God wants us to believe that he has the power to change your life and to change my life. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathered the waters of the sea together as a heap, and he lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations he frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. That's one of the most glorious passages of Scripture, in my opinion. Because God uses, through the, the psalmist here, the illustration of what he did to create to convince man of the fact that he cannot run his own life and nations cannot even chart their own courses. As I think today about these individuals over there today trying to, to hammer out a Middle East peace accord, I think, oh, the hopelessness of it. Save for the hand of God, it's impossible to bring peace in an area that's never known peace for thousands of years. Only by the direct intervention of God will peace come to that area because even as it's said in this passage, God nullifies the counsel of nations. Men and women and whole nations of people plan against God, plan for their own future, plan for their own ways. And God just simply says no. It won't be that way. And he brings about his plan, and he frustrates the plans of the peoples, as it says in this passage. So as we study the details of Genesis 1, I, I hope what it does is build in us a sense of awe, maybe a, an additional sense of awe, and a sense that God is really in charge. He knows what he's doing not only individually for us, but corporately for the nation and for the world. And this will give us hope. It's real easy to get down. I know you, this is probably true for you as it is for me. If you get some of these newsletters that come out, like from the Focus on the Family Citizen magazine, or you get the paper that comes out from the American Family Association, you read all this trash, and after a while you get the feeling like, yuck, you know? Everything is so awful and raunchy and nothing good is happening. 
Got to go back and look at the Bible. <laughs> and remember, God is in charge. We just caught a, a, a few moments the other night of a television report on how bad the crisis, count, uh, crisis pregnancy centers are and how terrible they are in, in teaching lies to people. It was very, very uh, so warped towards, you know, abor abortion and that kind of thing. And, and you look at this kind of thing going on all the time, and you wonder, is God really here? Yes, it's really here. And it's not out of his control. God is charting the course, and history is following the course that he has charted. What's interesting is that although God blanketed the world with this glorious vegetation in one moment of time, he chose to cause it to continue and to rejuvenate over slow, with slow processes. With the seed that falls from the tree and into the earth and ultimately by some method gets enough earth around it so it's able to sprout and a new tree is, be, begins to rise. And of course you look at some of those trees, I don't know if you've I'm certain you have. I've walked out in the forest and you see this, this little teeny seedling is just starting to sprout. A, a, a pine seedling is just starting to sprout. It's out in the middle of a path where people walk. And, and, and the dirt is bone dry. And you wonder, oh, that seedling hasn't a chance. Not a chance in this world to survive. And yet, they do by the thousands. And the earth is renewed by this very slow process that God instituted to maintain, to rejuvenate the vegetation cover of the earth. All that we have ever known is this slow process. You probably have done, have done as I have done. You've put seeds in these little cups and you water them and you try to keep them out there so they'll sprout and some actually do. A lot of them don't. You wonder, what in the world? Then you dig in there and you can't even find the seed that you planted, you know. <laughs> Was I blind when I put it in there or what, you know? Um, and, and all we've ever known is the slow growth, sometimes too fast when your lawn keeps growing, you know, you're mowing the thing off. But uh, basically, slow growth, and, and will that plant ever flower again, you know, type syndrome that we find ourselves in. That sudden, sudden swathing of the earth, though, must have given it a real appearance of having been there for a long time. Antiquity. This appearance of age, I've mentioned it several times before, is really intriguing, to me at least, that the earth, in whatever stage God had it, as we read through these first verses of Genesis, if you had been there, you would have said, well, yeah, looks like the plant's been here for a long time, thousands of years anyway. It had been there but for a few hours. It's kind of interesting that I think when God spread out all these trees and all these flowers, that the flowers were blooming and the trees were fruiting. There were well, whatever the fruits were, hanging off the trees already. God created them in the full stage of maturity. Presupposing a childhood the world never had. And for which men and women are today still searching. Searching for the years that never were in the history of the world. Now, the term seed appears here in this passage. It talks about the herbs bearing seed and the trees bearing fruit, which in them contain seeds. The term seed is the Hebrew zerah, which literally means offspring. So it's quite obvious what the purpose of the seed was. The purpose of the seed was to bring offspring to that particular plant, whatever it happened to be. In that little packet, God had instilled the, what we know today as the DNA code. 
And that code, if, if you've ever uh, looked at the Crick-Watson model or studied some of the uh, writings that have been based on that, you see that intricate pattern that was developed of all those different little molecular structures which only fit together in, a, in one way. One key fits the lock and only one key. And you think every little seed packet had that DNA code to replicate the adult and only the adult. The seed from, let's call it an apple, the seed from the apple when it dropped in the ground wouldn't produce an orange or a pear or a grass or an herb. It would only replicate an apple because that's the way God made it to be. And today we know through the study of genetics why that is so. And we know the mechanism, at least far better than we did prior to Gregor Mendel's studies in Austria. Ten times in this first chapter of Genesis, we see the phrase, after its kind. After its kind. Obviously, it conveys a very important concept. And this is really the crux of the whole situation. This is where the battle rages. What does after its kind mean? How the concept of kind is used in Genesis and other passages in Scripture where it shows up, how, how that concept would fit together with modern uh, biological interpretations and theories, classification system, has never been demonstrated satisfactorily to all researchers. The current system of biological taxonomy, taxonomy being the science of classification and naming of living beings, in this case biological taxonomy anyway, has its roots way back in ancient Greece. As I mentioned to you before, and, and certainly through your own studies, you have discovered the Greeks loved orderliness. And they wanted things to be categorized. And that's why you had men such as Aristotle who sought to know everything there was to know about everything. <laughs> Today it's a joke to even think of that. You, you've heard that... Uh, Material is coming off the presses so rapidly today in individual areas that you could spend your full time just studying the new research in just one little area and not have time to even breathe or, or think about anything else and still get behind, let alone trying to learn everything there is to know about everything. You know. I mean, there, were field, there are fields of knowledge today that the ancient Greeks didn't even know of. But they try to categorize things. They try to put everything in a pigeonhole so that they could somehow grasp this world in which they lived. Are they having a lesson or a party? Is what I'd like to know. Now, some of the systems developed by the ancient Greeks were fairly complex. There was a man by the name of Theophrastus who lived in the fourth century BC who developed a system of classifying plants based on a close study of the structure of the leaves, of the stems, of the root systems, of the fruit that was produced. And he studied all these things as best as he could, having, of course, no chemical knowledge of, of this. Uh, and, and he classified things accordingly. Then there were some rather simple systems, such as Aristotle's system. He lived in the same century. Aristotle also classified animals, and he did it into three categories. Animals on the ground, animals in the water, and animals in the air. Now, I can handle that. <laughs> I think I, I can, could keep up with uh, at least that general system of classification. You kind of keep yourself out of a lot of trouble that way. <laughs> well, it flies. <laughs> it must be an animal of the air. Well, good. What do you do with a flying fish? <laughs> you know? Well, probably you never saw a flying fish. Now, modern taxonomy 
is based on a system developed by the 18th century Swede whose name was Carolus Linnaeus. And if you've ever studied biology, of course, you know that the modern system really has its roots in what this man did. But what your modern biological textbooks will not tell you about Carolus Linnaeus was he was committed creationist. He believed that God created the heavens and the earth and God created the plants and the animals. They did not evolve. His system is based on observable structural differences and similarities between plants and animals. And starting with the most simple forms that you can find going up to the most complex forms, he has built a system of classification. And the nomenclature, of course, is based on Latin, and, and that's why we become <coughs> rather frustrated sometimes with the big long names that are stuck on these different creatures. But the value, of course, of, of using Latin was that Latin was no longer an evolving tongue. You didn't have to worry about the pronunciation and everything changing and, and the structure changing because it was a dead letter. And so you, you could work with this. And of course, it, it, you know, it is a, a very systematic type language. And so that has become the foundation uh, language for the development of modern taxonomy. Now, the system that Linnaeus used is the system modern biologists and evolutionists use. Now, it's obviously been modified, developed, and, and filled out over the uh, 200 or so years since Linnaeus developed it, but it nevertheless is the basic system. They interpret it differently from the way Linnaeus did. He interpreted it as this is what God did. Isn't God wonderful for the, the, the variety of structure that God used? And the evolutionist says, ah, can't you see the flow of evolution as the structure changes? And, and, and you go and you, you look at a modern textbook on, on let's say, invertebrate, invertebrate paleontology. And, and you see a, a diagram on a particular page and it shows how a particular clam, let's say, or mollusk of some sort, evolved because they put all the different drawings of what they say is the evolution of this creature from this ancient form to this modern form. And they have found these uh, shells in the rocks. But again, to determine the age of the rock in which you find the shell, you take that shell and compare it to the chart. And the chart says, this form lived at this time, so this rock is this age. This is called an index fossil, the index fossil, fossil method. The problem with the index fossil method is it goes back, as we talked about once before, into a kind of a circular thinking pattern. The fossil proves the date, the date proves the fossil. You can't have it both ways. You, you, you just can't go out there and use the radiometric dating system, you know, the decay series of various elements on every rock in the world to try to find out, I mean, it cost you an arm and a leg. And of course, even when that is done, they find often extreme wide varieties in dates given by different laboratories for the same rock sample. And of course, there are many assumptions in the whole radiometric dating system that may or may not have anything to do with reality, with the way things have really been. And if those assumptions, can any of them be disproven, then the whole system is thrown out the window. But you will discover, if you go out there and look at it closely, that the development of the radiometric system has paralleled the development of the theory of evolution. And the one really requires the other. And the whole geologic column is, is simply a construct, a human construct, which cannot be found anywhere in the rocks as it's presented in the geological column. Now, this system of taxonomy it must be emphasized that it is a man-made system. God didn't drop it out of the sky to Carolus Linnaeus and say, ah, this is the way it was done. Linnaeus built it from what he observed. It's a man-made system. 
As a result, there's a certain degree of arbitrariness in it. And certain decisions have to be made one way or the other. And of course, they may not have been made in the right direction. Now, it can be used to prove relationships to a certain degree and to a certain level, but it cannot be used to prove evolution. It's impossible to prove evolution. One of the basic reasons being it never happened. Now, the problem, one of the problems we face as believers is the fact that there are many people out there who are, are very radical in their approach to this. And they demand that God have created every single species just as we find them today as we walk planet Earth. And we see this sparrow and that sparrow and the other sparrow and this sparrow. That's the way God made them. He made every single sparrow that we find today, the one with the black throat, the one with the black head, the one with the red, well, you know, whatever. I don't think that's supportable. For one thing, it handcuffs God and his ability to, to produce a system that would itself variegate and produce a great number of varieties. And all we have to do is look at the human race, don't we? We categorize human beings as um, Caucasians, Mongolians, uh, Negroid, and sometimes Australoid. Usually four races, three main races. And yet you and I know that if you go out there and if you were to study mankind on a worldwide basis, you would discover you could start at one end of a continuum and go to the other end of the continuum and find an example for every single slot in that continuum all the way across there. Whether you're talking about color of skin, you know, the hair quality, the nose, the features, all kinds of features. I mean, there are people who are categorized in the Indian category, for example, who are tall and slender and narrow-bodied and lanky, and others who are short and squat and broad-shouldered and thick-trunked, round-headed, long-headed. I mean, the variety is there. Now, what did Adam and Eve look like? Now, we haven't gotten to Adam and Eve yet, but just think about it for a minute. What did Adam and Eve look like? you and I will generally postulate that they were white Caucasian. And that's the way they always appear in the children's books. But were Adam and Eve white Caucasian? Well, we don't know, but my guess is no. They probably were very nicely olive-skinned, I would say. Probably dark-haired. The vast majority of the population of the world is. Not that that proves that that's the way it ought to be. But God put within the genetic code of mankind the capability of, vari of, of variation to the extent that we find people today. So why couldn't he do it for every living creature he ever created? Certainly he could have. And I think certainly he did. When it says after its kind, I, I, I'm certain it didn't mean individual species as we find them today. Only those creatures that can mate with each other. Some have argued that the after its kind is as high as order. You know the, the, the biological classification system, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. That goes clear as high as order, but you know that, that's pretty high. Order is very, very broad. But family seems to fit really nicely if you look at it and think about it for a minute. Family of creatures. For example, dogs. Dogs are a family of creatures. And it's really not very, doesn't take a very large stretch of the imagination to see that a coyote and a wolf and a fox are somehow related. And we know that the St. Bernard and the Chihuahua are related because genetically they can mate, if not physically. And the same with cats, that a lion and a tiger, they're different species, but you've all heard of a lion, I, I mean of a liger, right? Or an Italian? <clears throat> now they normally don't mate because lions don't live where tigers live, except in zoos. And, 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 and pumas and, and, and ocelots and, and kitty cats, you know, they, they all 
even in appearance, there's a similarity there. And it, it doesn't take much of an imagination to see how from an original cat, this variety could be produced. And yet it would never cross the cat line. The kind is a cat. It never became a dog. It never was a fish or a turtle. It was always a cat. In the same way with so many families, monkeys, apes, people. <laughs> Some don't always distinguish <laughs> between those three. But pines and roses and lilies, grasses, it, to me, it's not hard to imagine that these were the kinds that God created with a capacity to vary through the ages of time to produce the tremendous uh, variety that we see today of these different types of creatures. Let me look, uh, read to you a passage from Leviticus which demonstrates another use of the word kind. Leviticus chapter 11 Verse 13, this is God giving instructions, of course, to Moses and to Aaron. And he says, These moreover you shall detest among the birds. They are abhorrent, not to be eaten. The eagle, the vulture, and the buzzard, the kite and the falcon, in its kind, every raven, in its kind, the ostrich and the owl and the seagull and the hawk, in its kind and the little owl, and the cormorant, and the great owl, and the white owl, and the pelican, and the carrion vulture, and the stork, and the heron in its kind, and the hopo, and the bat. Now it really doesn't sound like a long list of, of luscious dinners, you know, to me anyway. But uh, the, the point is, the term kind, it's the same word it's used in Genesis, in the Hebrew. It's used here. And the kind here, you'll notice, is to a specific bird grouping, the falcon, the hawk, whatever, all these different ones here. And, and, and these are kinds. And, and we can think of owls. Owls look like a very peculiar kind of bird, and they don't look much like a raven or a stork. And we could understand that as being a kind. And they could vary from the great owl to the little owl. You know, to the barn owl, to the hoot owl, whatever. They're still owls, and they never became anything else other than owls. Somewhere God built a barrier, and he said they will reproduce after their kind, and that is all. And that automatically mitigates against evolution. Variation, yes. Evolution, no. There's no way that a common thread of life changing through varieties could happen because the barrier is there and God set it. The fish never could have become the salamander. The salamander never could have become the bird and so forth, even though they do attempt to show that kind of an evolutionary development. In the New Testament, there is also a very broad statement of kind in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 38. But God gives it a body just as he wished, to each of the seeds a body of its own. Kind, of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another flesh of fish. Now those are very broad categories, but they seem to imply that there's a difference there that never could be transgressed. Boundaries that cannot be crossed. Completely different flesh, whatever that all implies, amongst these different creatures that God created. Any questions or insights about this before we move on to the next day? Monday. Oh, no. I, uh, going back to the geology of the beginning of Earth, uh, there's various different theories, but the one that I believe we should consider your logic, for instance, uh, uh, 
that the during the flood the earth was covered with water. That's quite believable. If the mountains weren't as tall as they are, and also looking at uh, pictures of Everest, it appears to be a sedimentary rock block formation. I don't know where the sediments came from. Beginning whether they created before the earth had any vegetation during while it's formless and void, or perhaps during the flood, which would seem to me to be terribly violent. I don't know how the ark could survive. Uh, but it seems like an awful lot of mountain ranges perhaps came up during the flood or after the flood. Um, how does this fit in with your idea that uh, the continents were created at the beginning? Could there have been a continent split? Oh, sure. The Americas from Europe uh, during the flood? Yeah. We're, of course, several chapters away from the flood. I think that, you know, the flood is obviously a great catastrophe. It was a whole lot more than just a lot of rain coming and the water slowly rising until it covered everything. I think it was uh, a worldwide titanic uh, explosion of tectonic forces because it says the great deeps were broken up and the waters from under the earth came pouring forth. Uh, I think there was massive land movements at that time. And the laying down of sediments which would have occurred in such a massive flood could easily be the sediments that now are on the tops or part of the rocks of many of the mountain ranges that we find today. Uh, I doubt that the, t that the continents were totally rearranged, but they could easily have been separated, as you're saying. It could have been that one, we had maybe one giant landmass land in the beginning, and then God then separated them as, of course, the evolutionists theorized uh, Pangea, and then it's breaking up into North America, South America, Europe, and Asia, and all these continents splitting apart, and they try to show how they all would fit together. That could really have happened. In fact, it says in a later passage that in those days the earth was divided, and there's a lot of question about what that means. Was it the division of languages, or was it literally a physical division of the continents, one from the other? Now, there's a lot of things we could postulate, nothing we can prove. Yes. Yes. That's right, it would. All right. Certainly there were great mountain masses in existence before the flood. And uh, the mountains of Ararat uh, were obviously a place that was known. And of course, we, if you've ever read, yeah, I'm sure you have, the accounts of trying to find the ark up on Ararat in recent centuries. And the tradition of the people who live in that area, the Kurds and others who live in that area, is that that mountain has been known as Ararat for as long as their tradition exists, which is thousands of years. So whether that Mount Ararat is the Mount Ararat upon which the ark landed or not, uh, the tradition indicates that it is. could very well have. This, this is premature because we're a long ways from the flood, <laughs> but I've always thought it would be a, a, a gigantic wonder that the ark would ever survive until our day, considering all the things that, that had to take place over the thousands of years since the time of the ark. Not that God couldn't do that, but uh, I'm not sure what the purpose would be for it to be there. Remember what the man said when um, the rich man died and Lazarus died and they went to heaven and Abraham's bosom and, and into purgatory, well, not purgatory, but Hades. And the man in Hades wanted to go back and tell his brothers. And uh, the answer from Abraham was, hey, if they won't believe Moses, they're not even going to believe you if you come back from the dead. So on that premise, what would be the purpose of, of an ark still being in existence today. Is that going to cause anybody to come into faith? Well, it could, yes. But would it? I don't know. Len? Oh, I'm sorry.
Yeah. Exactly. That's an excellent verse. Thank you. Len? When you described earlier God being the author of beauty and, and uh, loving beauty uh, himself, and of course it's expressed here, and God saw that it was good. Well, we thought of that in relation to the description of the throne of God in Revelation 4, where the revelator tries to put into some kind of human language what God looks like, quote unquote, and all he can resort to is the precious stones and the color spectrum. Yeah. And what a, what a marvelous place heaven must be. Of course, it's the interpersonal thing that's the most important, but what a place of incredible beauty that must be. Yeah, isn't that so? And the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem and all of that all being described that way. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic to even dream about. Yes, well, that's true. Uh, the point is, uh, whatever the kinds were that were created at that time. Um, we, we know, for example, uh, from at least some basic understanding of the rock records that there are creatures that we don't see today that at one time lived. Yes, right, after their kind, but the point is, what does kind mean? See, that's, that's the only point I'm trying to make. An owl, you know, the family of owls. Uh, it's just like what did, when God created Adam and Eve, what did they look like? What did their children look like? Where did black people come from? Where do white people come from? Where do the oriental people come from? Where do people who are genetically short, genetically tall, all these different things, where do they come from? Well, they come from the genetic code of Adam and Eve. And God made that genetic code with the capacity to, var to variegate to the extent that we find the human race today. And I believe that's true of all the different creatures. So that the variety could, could be there from tiger to lion, from panther to puma. Uh, they're all cats. But that variety, he didn't necessarily, and I'm not saying he didn't. I'm saying he, it's not necessary that he have created a specific tiger, a specific lion. This, uh, because we do have record in the rocks, at least without talking about evolution, of animals today that didn't, don't ever appear before in the rock records, in terms of specific species. That's all I'm saying. So I'm just saying the kind does not have to mean every single little tiny variety that we find in existence today, because God is, is capable of allowing it to variegate beyond his original creation to the fullness of what we see today. That's all I'm saying. Okay. I think as Dr. Walmark was saying that the, the beautiful things that are described in Revelation and elsewhere about heaven 
uh, not only illustrate the personality of who God is, but are for our wonder and our awe. You know, to think about it. Some people think of, oh, the, how sterile it would be to walk around on streets of gold, you know. But that's just the revelator's attempt to explain what he saw. And I think it's something far more beautiful than just a bunch of gold lying around on the streets, you know. Anybody else? Well, I think I won't try to embark on the fourth day here at this particular time, but we're going to look at the, of, at the creation of the astrosphere, the sphere of the, of the light givers, the stars, the sun, the moon, and all of this next time, and uh, how this expresses the eternality of God in contrast to the temporalness of the creation after the fall. And the fact that we, as it, created in the image of God, are eternal beings also. And that's why our eternal destiny is so important to us.